So I'm Kelly. I've been here for a little while. Um, since my early teens, actually, which is coming up 20 years old. It's a wee while. Um, this morning, I'm actually really excited, as John said, to be sharing a little bit about what I have learnt while waiting on answers from God. I'm still part way through this journey. I don't have my answers yet. So some of you will already have walked further down this road and will have wisdom for me, and I would love to hear that. And yet others of you, I hope that you find revelation from God for your situations, as I attempt to be his mouthpiece here this morning. So I've done a lot of reflection on the scriptures in the last few years, um, perhaps more than what I was before things got difficult. And not too long ago, it was about two o'clock in the morning, and I woke up thinking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know the story? So there's these three guys, and they were asked to bow down to the king's statue, and they say, no, that's not right. And the king says, well, here's a waiting furnace for you. And they are thrown in there, and then suddenly there's four people in there, and they're all unharmed. And they say, come on out then, what's, what's going on? And they three come out, and the king goes, okay, well, we'll praise your God. So I was thinking at about two in the morning, not just about the facts of that story, but I was imagining what were they actually, what were they thinking? Did they go willingly into that fire? Because they had to be bound and tied, so likely not. But I was thinking, what would I be thinking in this situation? I'd be thinking something along the lines of, you know, God, okay, I've done what you said I should do. All right, I, I stood up, so now, now it's your turn to come through. You know, maybe um, you're going to change this law. Maybe there's going to be this invading army that's going to come in and suddenly turn this all around for me. At any time now, God, another distraction, anything, radically fall on him and change his heart. I would have so many suggestions while standing there. <laughs> anything, God. I'd be constantly fighting against my doubt and then resetting my mind back on God, doubting, resetting back on God. And this is just how I think. This is how I imagine I would be thinking, not that I've been in that situation. But I wonder, maybe instead was it that they had no doubts at all? Maybe it was their faith that was so strong and unwavering. They had no suggestions at all for God. Maybe it went something more along the lines of, thank you, God. Thank you for this amazing opportunity to serve you in death. We, your children, we face you full of passion. We face this fire full of passion for you. Oh, death, where is your sting? Heads held high, victorious, heading on whatever plan God had for them. Maybe there wasn't really a need for the guards to tie them up and drag them in. Maybe they saw the miracle because their faith was so strong that these people that are written in the scriptures for us, we don't know their thoughts, but we do know that they're human. And we do know that even Jesus prayed so hard that he sweated blood, but he went to the cross anyway, trusting in God's plan. In Hebrews 11.11, 11, it says that Abraham was enabled to become the father of faith because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And he's our father of faith, right? We also know from Genesis 16, he first slept with his wife's handmaiden, Hagar. No doubt, Totally unwavering? Not quite. But we do know that God can work with any amount of faith that we bring to him. 
and he can reproduce that and multiply it for his plan to succeed. Now, God had a different plan to our three in Daniel, but in order to fulfill it, they had to step right up to that precipice. They had to come right up to that edge and then right over it. And can you imagine all the suggestions, all the imagining, hoping, praying, please, God, please, get us out of this, right to the edge of the furnace, staring down death and right over the edge and into the very thing that they feared the most. But that's not where God leaves them. There were four in the fire. And they came out not even smelling of smoke. And God did change the king's heart, but not in the way that they thought, and I would imagine definitely not in their timing. Daniel similarly faced down the wide yawning mouth of the lion's den in Daniel 6. Surely every step closer and closer, surer and surer that God was leading him into actual death. Right at the edge, did hope give out? Or did he fight to stay out, or did he willingly go in, accepting death, embracing the thought of finally being with his Lord? I think it would have been very hard not to be thinking about the whole mauled by lions thing. My suggestions might have been something along the lines of, you know, at any point you can get me out before this may be a heart attack about now, so I can just avoid the, the mauled by lions thing. A big earthquake, cave, cave it in. Yeah, and I don't have to face all that. But instead, he had to not only face the hole, but step right into it. And there were angels who were waiting, who shut the mouths of the lions. And God did change the law. King Darius changed it, that everybody must worship Daniel's God. But probably not how Daniel had imagined or prayed all of those days and years beforehand. And certainly not in the timing he might have liked. What about Gideon? Judges 6. Praying for salvation from the invading army for seven years. There he is, threshing at dawn, in the dark. God, if only that army were gone and I could thresh in the light. It's all their fault. Why won't you come through? Can't you bring another army or distract them or the king dies? Why won't you save us? Aren't we your people? God, I've got plenty of suggestions for how you could get this done. But unlike the other couple of examples, we actually do get to hear Gideon's voice. When the angel of the Lord comes, which usually refers to Jesus in the Old Testament, this is what he says to him. He says, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and has handed us over to the Midianites. Bitter much. Instead of hearing out Gideon's plans, God says, you, Gideon. And then does Gideon have no doubts and go willingly? Again, we know for Gideon, fleece out, wet fleece, dry ground. Okay, God, God, that's good. Bear with my lack of faith here. Not that I'm doubting, but let's just try again, dry fleece, wet ground. Really, it's you? Really, really? But then it's not enough for God simply to get him, the least of his family, to save the entire nation of Israel, but God whittles his army down to only 300 and then takes on what the scriptures describes as so many like locusts, impossible to count. 
There's plenty of times that the Old Testament gives us big lists of exactly how many numbers there were. But in this case, not even so many that they couldn't even count them. So, Gideon, though, he had to steer down the edge and go over it. Not just plan, but assemble an army. And not just assemble the army, but to actually raise the battle cry and lead them, charging into pretty much certain death with 300 against innumerable. And there are so many stories in the scriptures to fill us with hope. And God loves hope. And that hope fills us with faith. There's a line by Book Fraser that has been a bit of a mantra for me over the last few years. And it's, and while I wait, I'm made more faithful. And this is true. Waiting in seemingly hopeless situations and choosing repeatedly to trust God and set my mind back on Him, it does build our faith. But, sometimes, sometimes God does not save. The martyrs stand before their accusers and they are stoned to death like Stephen. They're flogged, beaten, beheaded, sawn in half. They're lined up, executed at gunpoint, and they're gassed by the roomful. Sometimes we go right to the precipice and over, and we face not salvation from our fears, but the worst imaginable. What then? We've been having all these stories the last couple of weeks about all these amazing things that have been going on, things that God's doing. You know, and we're, we're, the atmosphere when those are going on is really awesome. It's exciting. It's like, yes, God, yes. God will come through. Imagine if we were sharing instead the stories about the things that we're waiting for yet. Things that God hasn't come through, that we've been waiting, maybe like Gideon seven years for. There's still no answer. Or the things that God said no, and you don't understand why. What might the atmosphere in the room be like then? How do those stories, and they happen, how do those stories affect our faith with God and our relationship with him and our trust in him? King David had a sick child, deathly ill, and he wept, and he mourned, and he petitioned God. He made his suggestions. He begged for God to change it, to heal the child. David stood right at that precipice, and he was made to step over it, and he faced the worst that I can imagine, and he lost his child. Ah, you say that's his own fault, though. Because this, remember, this is his child that he had with Bathsheba. Another man's wife who he took had her husband killed when he found out that she was pregnant and he couldn't trick his husband into sleeping with her. But what about Bathsheba? It was her child too. Did she not pray hard enough? Did she not have enough faith? Had she not lost enough already? The Bible says she was the beloved of her husband. She was, lost, uh, she was loved there. She lost her husband, and then she lost the child too. Moses, despite being the one who spoke to God face to face and led the Israelites out of Egypt, despite being able to intercede for that sinful group of people, he stepped over the precipice. He risked his life facing Pharaoh. 
He faced 40 years in a... Is that still all right? It just feels like it. Sorry. <laughs> he faced 40 years in a desert waiting for God's plan. And he was denied access to the promised land because he hit a rock too hard. How trivial does that seem? How grieved must his heart have been? You may look from a distance, but you can't go there. Maybe this was Moses' fault too. Come on, Moses. Bit of self-control. But what about these? James, brother of John, and Peter were taken captive by Herod. James followed God all the way through, and he was martyred, killed by the sword. Peter, meanwhile, was led out by angels. Chains fell off and walked out. Why was one spared and the other not? Did James' family not pray hard enough? Was that what that was about? At both Moses' time and Jesus, the ruler decided to kill all the infant males, but God spared Moses and Jesus. What about all those other mothers? How many of those other mothers prayed with all that they had that their baby would be spared? That somehow they would escape? But their children were thrown in the river. They were killed by Herod's soldiers. Was it because of some lack on their behalf? Could they, should they have been doing more? John the Baptist was imprisoned, Jesus' own cousin, someone that Jesus cared very deeply for. He was beheaded for the pleasure of some vindictive woman. Did Jesus not pray for his safety? Did his family and followers not pray enough? They'd seen Lazarus raised from the dead. But for John, the answer was no. No release in this life, only death. And Jesus mourned him, deeply grieved, but the answer was still no. How about Hebrews 11, our faith chapter? It lists all the amazing things done by our faith fathers. We have, it says here in verse 33, who's through faith, subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, and women received their dead back to life again. Hallelujah, how exciting. Those fathers of faith. The second half of that last verse goes on to say, and others were tortured, they had cruel mockings and scourgings. This is, I've done it in King James. Moreover, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn as, torn asunder, tempted, slain with the sword. They were destitute, afflicted, and tormented. No amount of faith or blessing or favor from God can make our lives good all of the time. Or even most of the time. Life is made of the hard times. And if you live long enough, you'll see tragedy. Our ultimate example, Jesus, even he faced unanswered prayer. He, as the Son of God, asked and prayed so hard for a way other than the cross that he sweated blood. And that's a fervent prayer. A prayer from a perfect person with no sin to be a barrier between him and God. And still the answer was no. And his response? He went. He faced the precipice and over the edge and at his death asking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
the perfect son of God can struggle with God's plan, how much more will we? Would we willingly go over that precipice? It always amazes me that Jesus went willingly up to the cross with the power to call down the armies of heaven. And he still followed God's plan. And I think my heart is willing, but the flesh is weak. I want to follow God, but if it came to it, when it gets too hard, too painful, if it were up to me, I'd choose another way. I need my hands and feet bound like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or else I'd never willingly step into the fire. Even if I knew I'd find salvation in the fiery furnace, the mouths of the lions stopped, or I'd see an incredible victory with 300 against the innumerable. So how do you know which side of the story you're going to be on for your situation? You don't. Are we made more faithful, like the book Fraser Lyric, when God doesn't save at the end of it? It depends on our reaction. We don't know the outcomes in advance. We trust God anyway. We hope in the face of certain failure. David begged and prayed and petitioned to God to the very last minute. And when it's over, no matter if we win or if we lose, we praise God because God is good. What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? What did Daniel, Gideon do? They praised God. Easy enough in victory, right? Spontaneous even. Hallelujah, we have the victory. Easy. But what did David do? He got up, he washed and cleaned and praised God because God is good. No matter your situation, you praise God. Sometimes I think this is an impossibility. <laughs> I am so down, I'm so sad, and God says, praise me. And sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But I can say with absolute certainty that when I do, something lifts Sometimes I am in so much bitter pain and sometimes anger <laughs> that I can't even muster a good thought, let alone sing praises to him. But I've learned to start small. I have a line, a lyric, a verse that you can start with just as a thought. And just, just run it through your mind. So God is good. My God is an awesome God. Oh, my soul, the Lord has been good to you. My mind will always reply back to that first thought. It scoffs. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> Have you had a look around? This is good? You're delusional. This is a lie. <laughs> what a lie. This is not good. This is, this is awful. Who are you kidding? this reply thought of mine is actually the lie. So how do we defeat lies of the mind? With truth. So I will say it out loud, although sometimes it does take me a while to get there. God is good. You may not believe it quite at that point when I say it. So I nod with it. God is good. And again, God is so good. 
And it gets easier as you go. Trust me, I've done this quite a few times. And I try, by the stage, I think, okay, I'll add, a, I'll add a melody to it, which usually comes out as a bit of a squeak by this point, as the lies are starting to break off as I am fighting them with the truth. Sometimes, though, it's not my mind. Sometimes we get this attack from the devil, too. And in those cases, then I need to speak to the devil and put him back in his place and remind him where he belongs. And that is under my feet because I'm a stick snatched from the fire. I'm a daughter of heaven. (laughs) And I am covered in the blood of Jesus. And I remind the devil that I will not let his lies and his fear impact my spirit. Because I know that he first has to ask the Lord for permission. And that anything that he has brought my way, no matter what it is, no matter how hard it is, is right where God wants me. And that's where I will stay. So I praise God to lift the lies of my mind. And I praise God to chase away the devil. And either way, praise breaks our chains. It seems so counterintuitive. But God designed us, and he knows what works. And praise is what he says he wor- it says is what works. In the Bible, it tells us how to overcome this terror, this bitterness of soul. What has he given us against the spirit of heaviness? The garment of praise. David said, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Praise doesn't necessarily bring about change for your situation, although there are many biblical examples that it can, but it certainly always, always changes us. So we know that in all situations, there is hope that God will come through. Usually, we must step over that precipice to find out what is on the other side. Rest assured, God is always on the other side, no matter how the situation ends. We must trust in a God who is so much bigger than us, whose ways are not our ways. If we had a God whose plans made sense to us, it's probably not a very big God. Our God is infinite. As God asks Job while his prayers were still unanswered, Who are you to question me? It's God's answer to Job. Our God is higher. My little Aiden, at two years old, he can't possibly understand the global economy. (laughs) Not entirely sure I do. But if I was to try and explain any part of it to him, It's not going to matter how much that I I break that down into little pieces and explain it and use little words and how many times I tried to tell him. He's just not going to get it. There's a reasonable gap between Aidan's ability to understand and my ability to understand. How much bigger is that difference between my ability, our ability to understand, and God's ability to fathom? 
what could possibly make me think that even if God explained it to me, that I could ever understand, I could ever hope to understand that when bad things happen, he is making it good. I doubt we'll ever understand. But in the Bible, that's exactly God's answer to Job. My ways are higher than your ways. But we can rest assured that our big, big God truly does have our very best. No matter how it looks on this side of the final precipice. So we will praise him no matter what. It's very easy to look at the book of Job and to feel very uncomfortable about the way that God seems to invite that attack on Job at the start. Is he merely some pawn and a vindictive dig at the devil? I think not. We have a God who loves us and can see the end far better than we can. Job looked back at the end over his trial and he was able to say that before I've heard of you and now I've seen you. I know you. God was after Job's heart. And Job was able to look back over his trial and be thankful for it. Not like it, but be able to see God's hand in the pain. When we praise our bigger than us God in our trial, regardless of the answers, we learn to know God. To focus on the God of the answers, not just the answers themselves. And that is the ultimate goal. I'm going to finish with a a scripture that's one of my favorites at the moment. And it's Psalm 138.8. And it says... The Lord will work out his plans for my life. Your faithful love, O Lord, endures forever. The reasons that I love this verse is because the first part, the Lord will work out his plans for my life, reminds me that all the chaos and all the horrible stuff that's going on, God has a plan in it. It's not just chaos. There's been times when that actually wasn't very reassuring. There's been times where I've been feeling very angry at God and disappointed that he's not listening to my suggestions. <laughs> and I have felt uncomforted by that first part of that verse. This God that's let all this happen, it's his plans. Do I really want to say more of that? But the second half of the verse, your faithful love, O Lord, endures forever reminds me that it's not some vindictive God, some mean God that's working out these plans. It's a good God. It's a God with an enduring love for me, for all of us. It's a God that um, is not going to just let me go, but he's going to stay there with me right through no matter what the answer is, no matter what the outcome is at the other end of it. Thank you, Sandra. Scary. Wow. 
truth.